Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and we are recording this podcast in a stunning, stunning row house in Albany and Arbor Hill. It's 194 Livingston Avenue. And you can feel the history here. This was the home of Harriet and Stephen Myers, who were active in the Underground Railroad. And the reason we're here is because we're going to be talking this morning with Mary Liz and Paul Stewart, who are the founders of the Underground Railroad History Project. And thank you so much for having us. Thank you for being here. Thank you. What I would love to do is just hear sort of from the beginning how this project came to life. I knew Mary Liz Stewart because she was a fifth grade teacher at Burn Knox Westerlow, and I went to her classroom probably 20 years ago, and she was teaching children about the Underground Railroad. They were on the edge of their seats, raising their hands, very excited, and here we are now. So what happened in between? <laughs> oh, gosh, so many things. Let's see if I can give a thumbnail sketch. Um, following the um, my exiting of the classroom at Burn Knox Westerlow, I decided that it was time to put my full energies into working on Underground Railroad History Project and helping to bring the history forward to figure out ways to engage the local community with this very inspiring and very different story of Underground Railroad activism. And while I was doing that, Paul Stewart uh, was working as a volunteer journalist for a local community newspaper called The South End Scene, and he as well was interested in bringing forward more documented information about local Underground Railroad activists. And so we thought, well, maybe it's time to have a personal research project. And the, the initial idea was, that um, oh, that you know we'd find what we needed we'd mark all those those houses that had a relevance to this history and then our life would go on and boy we were never so wrong <laughs> so this has evolved into actually buying a physical home for mm. your project and just tell us a little about this there's a marker out front and I was thrilled to learn I hadn't known that Stephen Myers was a newspaper editor yeah. <laughs> and tell us a little about his paper and who he was okay well Stephen Myers was uh, a person who was born in the in the context of New York as a slave state he uh, uh, an African-American man he uh, grew up in the capital region um, as he got older, he began working as a steamboat steward and as a, a seller of groceries, uh, a variety of other tasks, but he was very interested in education. And so as one of the ways to help people in the community um, get education and sustain education, he was very interested in newspapers. And so he created um, a newspaper called The Elevator, um, which was an initial um, effort at uh, producing a newspaper, but then later on he collaborated with a couple of other fellows in creating something called the Northern Star and Freeman's Advocate. And um, so throughout his life, he did things with newspapers and newsletters, so this, this was something that was very, very important to him. Um, and uh, after about 1831, 
Um, he, well, in 1831, he was assisting several people who had uh, escaped from enslavement and were making their way north or perhaps on to Canada. And um, so ever since 1831, he started helping people, and he did this more and more. And eventually he became the main point person for the Underground Railroad in the capital region. And what's neat about his story, unlike a lot of other stories we hear about things that might have been involved in the Underground Railroad, he actually left a pretty good paper trail. Not as perfect as we might like, but uh, there are letters, um, there are copies of the newspaper that he was involved in that survived. Um, He is mentioned many times in the local press, uh, and many prominent people mention him in their uh, biographies or their memoirs about this period. So uh, he's a person that has a bit of a paper trail. Uh, and, and so he lived in a lot of different places, he and his wife, in the, in the capital region, in Albany particularly. But um, the only building that seems to have survived where he was active in the Underground Railroad is this one at 194 Livingston Avenue. I'd like to add as well that it's. I think it's important to know that Stephen Myers was born enslaved in New York State. And one of the features that we tend to get excited about is that having been a man enslaved in New York State uh, and then being manumitted or given his legal freedom around 1818, we're able to follow his story post-emancipation so we can learn about how he lived out his life, which many times is a factor in uh, sort of a factor that we don't know about many people who did escape enslavement. We arrive at a point where we learn about their escaping, and then there's really not much to follow the rest of their lives through. So in this case, you know, we have these elements of Stephen Meyer's story after he was uh, manumitted, and it helps us to better understand some of the real stories and the, the real life experiences of our abolitionists. And also, it's good to let people realize there was slavery in New York, because <laughs> yes. so often Northerners yes. think of it as a Southern problem, yes. as opposed to something that was uh, throughout the country at yes. the time. And the specific page of the Northern Star that you've chosen to put on your uh, plaque out front, it just uh, is chilling. There are two huge events that he's writing about as mm. they happen. Yeah. The Supreme Court decision between Maryland and Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. which was so horrible, yeah. and the um, situation it says across the ocean, mm-hmm. meaning England. Right. So right. you feel like just reading that one page, <laughs> you kind of grasped yeah. um, some of the, the major issues. Yes. Um, we also found that uh, New York State, again, as you were you know reminding us so often, doesn't get included in the story about the institution of slavery in this country. Uh, New York State, when it uh, abolished the institution of slavery within its borders, it was 1827. So New York was second to the last of the northern free states to abolish the institution of slavery. As many records indicate, as many as 10,000 people were set free. And then uh, as well, there were still laws on the books that uh, protected the enslaver and slave relationship for up to nine months for people who came into New York State for various purposes uh, from states that allowed slavery to be 
legally practiced. So, it, and as well, there were state and federal laws that made providing any kind of assistance to freedom seekers uh, criminal activity. So this was really a very risky time. And even free people of color, such as by this time in 1827, Stephen Myers had uh, you know received his freedom, but yet he and and other African Americans were still at great risk for being apprehended and uh, sent into enslavement based upon the way that the laws were written. So it really was a very, very risky time, much more so than we tend to speak about when we talk about New York's involvement in in, uh, this period of American history. So what does it do for your project to have this brick-and-mortar Testament. Yeah. Before we started, Paul showed me on his phone some pictures of, I'm assuming they're local kids, dressed up in some period um, clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, just tell us a little about how you use this space. And Well, the, the space itself is... Um, there are a variety of things that happen. Uh, as an organization, we certainly hold our meetings here, our board meetings and our committee meetings. But we also have many people who come here to who just want to see the place, and we offer tours uh, for people to go through the building and, and see the various things. We have some exhibits on the second floor um, uh, that tie in with the history of the story, with the Underground Railroad, and other things in that time period, such as the development of the Erie Canal, that uh, are, are relevant to understanding the period. Um, we have some... Uh, some furniture from the period here in the building. Um, you I'm know, sitting on an, a beautiful yeah. Empire <laughs> sofa, yes, <laughs> covered in velvet. Yes, a, go a, ahead. Antique uh, stove and uh, uh, some other items. And so we, we have a number of things that people can look at, touch and feel and experience, uh, kind of put their head in the mode of being in that place and in that space where these events happen. We also have some, some posters in the building that uh, illustrate various aspects of the story, like the one over my shoulder here, which is a, um, a poster that was uh, handed out by the Vigilance Committee of the Underground Railroad in the, in the mid-1850s, and it includes a lot of information on it about this place and this space. It says uh, it offers the address of 198 Lumber Street, and that is, in fact, where we are here at 194 Livingston Avenue, Lumber Street having been renamed to Livingston after the Civil War. And that is signed by Stephen Myers as mm-hmm. general agent and superintendent. Right. So another thing that you've done, and I recently experienced and would love oh. to talk about, is you've set up an annual conference. Mm-hmm. And tell us how that came about and the function there. Well, that all started because uh, back at uh, back in the beginning, let's see, the early 2000s, uh, Paul and I had been engaging in research uh, up to that point and arrived at a point, like I say, early 2000s, where we thought, you know, it would be really nice if we could get together with other folks from other communities around the state who we had heard were engaging in research similar to what we were doing and share our stories and see what else we could learn so we'd have a larger and, and more broader and more comprehensive understanding of this history and the story. And we uh, started looking around to see who might have a conference. Well, nobody did. So around our breakfast table staff meetings, <laughs> we decided, why don't we organize a conference? So we launched off and had the very first one in 2002. And uh, we realized uh, at that point that 
If we were going to continue the conference approach, that we would need to be able to accept donations, look for grants, and so on. So that's what sort of provided the impetus to form the nonprofit educational organization, Underground Railroad History Project. However, if I could go back to the conference for a moment, as I mentioned, our, our goal was to gather together people that had other stories to share related to this period in American history, and not just share them among researchers, but to share them with the community, because there was a, a, a foundational belief that the stories that were being uncovered, the voices of people who had been written out of history, were sharing a story that we felt by rights belonged to the community. And so the very first conference really was intended to be an opportunity to bring together researchers and community members to share this very inspiring story. And I have to say, we've just, every year, the first year we did this, Paul and I were the only organizers, and we were beat at the end of this one day, and this one day conference, and I remember at the end of the conference, looking at each other as we were drawing things to a conclusion, I put down the microphone I was holding, and I said to Paul, do we really need to ask if we need to do this again. And Paul said affirmatively, yes, we do. So up came the microphone, asked everybody in attendance if we needed to do this again, and the overwhelming response was yes. So here we are, 17 conferences later. And it's grown <laughs> every year. It's huge. It, it has. And, and we've had you know a number of people from the community step up to the plate to participate in the planning and the organizing. So it And it has become a very, not only a signature piece for Underground Railroad History Project, but it has become... Uh, a venue for people to bring new research forward, and now we have become much more deliberate in taking, uh, uh, organizing or arranging the format of the conference so that it's not just about information sharing, but it's also looking at the relevance of contemporary issues and how they have their roots back in the institution of slavery in this country, and what we can do to respond to the current you know, civil rights issues that still are part and parcel of our life. Yes, and your keynote speaker this year, and our readers can read about it in the Altamont <laughs> Enterprise. You had two authors, a black woman who describes herself as a daughter of slavery, Sharon Morgan, speaking with Tom DeWolf, who says he is a son of slave traders, and they had um, made a real effort to understand slavery from both sides and wrote a book about it, Gathering at the Table, and spoke, I think, very powerfully at your conference. And just before the podcast, Mary Liz was telling me a story about throwing a desk, and I hope you'll repeat <laughs> it, because what that did, the 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 keynote speakers just at this recent conference, was give people a sense that we should be doing something, mm-hmm. not just reading about history, because those forces from history are still with us. Mm-hmm. So just tell us a little about that. Oh, the desk story? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, long years ago, my goodness, oh, golly, uh, I'm trying to think time-wise. It was at least over a decade ago. I was reading a, a magazine article that was in a magazine still being published today called Rethinking Schools. And it, Rethinking Schools magazine provided some alternative uh, interpretations of various things related to 
the topic of education. And so this one particular article uh, involved an educator who's a high school teacher, a very longstanding high school teacher, engaging in some very thought-provoking conversations with her students about contemporary civil rights issues and the roots of the uh, the issues themselves. And so the, the analysis was deep and broad, and the students were really getting very excited, but also getting very angry. And she, as she relayed in her article, all of a sudden one of the students was so filled with rage, the only thing he could do was stand up and throw a desk in the classroom. And what it did for her was it certainly shook her up, but it also helped her to realize that she wasn't doing with her students what they so desperately needed, which was to take the next step and say, what can we do about these injustices? How can we respond? And for me, that was a very personally moving um, engagement with uh, an idea that I hadn't thought too much about. And that has really become that that idea of what do we do now? We have analysis, we have new information. What do we do with it now in order to try to make this world a more just and equitable place uh, for all of us? So, so what yeah. do we do and how does your organization help us figure that out? Well, part of what we do uh, through our organization is to try to help people come to terms, certainly with the past, uh, to understand it. Um, we talk about slavery and the relationship of so many of our institutions today, um, having been based in the, the, the work of enslaved people. Uh, and so um, we also try to help people to understand that they have a, a part in the process, that they can make changes in our society, that they need to be affirmative about it and step forward. And I think that in the context of what we do in terms of exploring the story of the Underground Railroad, we, we engage people and we help them to, to look for those places where they can make change. I'd also like to add, too, that what we found, what Paul and I found in our research was that certainly our Underground Railroad activists, the majority of whom were African American, and as in Stephen Meyer's case, he was enslaved, other uh, abolitionists were born free, but as they worked together collectively... They're very obviously at the top of their list of concerns and strategizing was what to do to abolish the institution of slavery. And second on their list would have been what do we need to do to meet the needs of freedom seekers who were coming into the community. We have a list of uh, 50 who came to the Stephen and Harriet Myers residence. So clearly a very definite need uh, to be addressed by our abolitionists. But then for our black abolitionists, they also took an, another step, and that was to decide on ways in which they could respond to the prejudice and discrimination that was part and parcel of their lived experience. So when it came to equity in housing, voting rights, just, um, jobs, um, you know, these men were working together locally, but then also working together in their network of African Americans around the country on strategies to ensure that, or to, to challenge the, uh, you know, the prejudice and the discriminatory practices that they were, engage they, they were encountering. We still have discriminatory practices today. Absolutely. And I don't know if this is too personal of a question, but it occurred to me as I was listening to Sharon Morgan mm -hmm. talk about, as a black person, how she was wary of white people. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, listeners don't know this, but mm -hmm. Meredith Stewart is white and Paul Stewart is black. And I just wonder, in your own relationship, if this has become something that you've worked through as 
kind of a model for the rest mm-hmm. of us. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I think I think both of us came from a background where we were uh, trying to honestly confront the issues that uh, were that society struggles with and confront them for ourselves. And I think that we had both made resolution in our own lives um, of. Uh, uh, Kind of, a, of of openness and and uh, uh, being genuine in our in our encounter with each other, uh, and so um, that's been uh, great for us. We certainly want to carry that ball um, down the field in relation to other people as well. Um, and so, in in part, this story of the Underground Railroad uh, symbolizes that for us, and is also a vehicle for uh, bringing that kind of reconciliation, I think, to a broader broader world. I love that answer. <laughs> I really do. And um, I know Paul has to get back to his real job, but just tell us a little about the Community Loan Fund, which is where you work. Because So, well, the Community Loan Fund is a nonprofit organization that's been around since 1985, and the idea is bringing together um, people who want to invest locally, uh, and they they invest uh, their, their money in the, in the loan fund. Um, the loan fund has a, a loan pool, um, so people uh, loan to the loan pool. Um, you know, individuals and institutions in the community, and then that money is loaned out to uh, uh, nonprofit organizations that have a return to the community and to micro enterprise businesses and to low income homeowners who. Um, uh, may have some issue with their home, you know, maybe a furnace that needs to be replaced or or windows or, or some other feature that, that threatens their home ownership. So um, we, we make affordable uh, capital available to those those markets. And, um, you know, basically it's, it's trying to, to invest locally and, and use those dollars uh, for the advancement of the community, the, the building up of the community. What a worthwhile job so do you either of you have any closing thoughts we've quickly run through our time well we didn't talk much about the physicality of the building here Uh, one of the things that um, is special about this location is that although there are many places people say oh this this place had something to do with the underground railroad or that place had something to do with the underground railroad this place is one of the best best documented places in connection with the underground railroad Um, you know we have the vigilance committee flyer which I mentioned before which specifically identifies that the Vigilance Committee of the Underground Railroad met uh, at 194 Livingston Avenue, excuse me, at 198 Lumber Street, which is 194 Livingston Avenue. Uh, we also have documentation uh, that uh, 50 people who passed through New York City were referred to a string of places of which this is one um, and uh, on their journey to, to Canada. So, um, uh, and there are many other Features about the story that that are that are that add to the documentation that underlie it and undergird it. So um, then the other thing about this this place, of course, when we first came to this building, the building was under threat of. Uh, I think within ten years it would have been a, a pile of bricks. There was a wall collapsing in the basement. There was a crack in the east wall, a bulge and a hole. The chimneys had been taken off. The gutter system had uh, failed and uh, was largely absent. And on the back side of the building, water had been running down the building, and uh, the rear wall was sagging. Uh, and so 
Uh, all of these are in a crack in the east wall, too. And there was a wall, I think, in the basement collapsing. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned that. So all of these things have been addressed. The windows have been replaced. Um, the, the, uh, the, the gutter system has been put back. Chimney's been put back on. Uh, the, uh, the wall in the back has been rebricked and pumped with mortar in places where the mortar had been washed out uh, and the underpinnings of the wall strengthened. Uh, so and many other features fixed. Um, so the the building is in great shape now in terms of going forward. There's still some issues on the inside that we have to deal with, but but we're working on it uh, and and still working on the restoration. So um, is there yeah. anything people should know if they want to get involved in this or contribute to this? And when when are you open if people okay. want to come see? Um, probably the uh, place to start would be to mention the Underground Railroad History Project website, which is www www.undergroundrailroadhistory.org. There is a lot of information uh, on that website to answer questions, but also if people would simply like to call us, we're more than happy to be at the other end of a phone at 518-432-4432. And for those who like Facebook, uh, there is a very robust Facebook page, which is also an excellent source, both of information, but also the uh, frequent up, you know, goings-on of things happening at the Myers residence and elsewhere. The other thing probably to mention is is that um, the Stephen and Harriet Myers residence is one of the initiatives of Underground Railroad History Project. We do have other things that we do, one of which is that Paul and I frequently go out to the public to speak to groups of you know, various sizes and ages and whatever. So if anyone's interested, uh, give us a call. We can talk further about you know possibilities for speaking to groups, uh, uh, off, what would be off-site for us, off-site from the Myers residence. We have a summer uh, teen program that we hold every year now. This is year eight. We're entering into, um, and again, a very uh, productive changing experience you know, for the teens who engage with us. So those are so, and then we do have, again, some other programs which are highlighted on the calendar page of the Underground Railroad History Project website, and I would encourage people to check out that page. Um, there's some very different programming uh, opportunities that we like to arrange you know, with, uh, with the community. And uh, the other thing I would mention, too, is that um, there is always you know, the opportunity for those who are interested to step up to the plate, to volunteer with the organization, to become members, um, to become donors. You know, there is always the need for continued funding to both sustain what's going on and to expand the outreach that, uh, that we've started and, and try to continue over the years. And we certainly are you know, very well, happy to to talk with people about what those various uh, active engagement opportunities could look like for them if, if interested. So, oh, and when we're open, um, we are open to the public. Um, open hours are routinely 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Friday, and Saturdays 12 to 4. But we can make ourselves available at other times if there is, you know, need or interest in coming to the Myers residence. Well, thank you, and thank you for keeping this piece of history, bringing it to life. Really, You're it's welcome. Great. Thank you. <laughs>